Welcome to A Long Way From Home, a podcast of the Ali Fernay Center, which examines how we LGBTQ people experience exile and rejection and explores how we find home and create community. I'm your host, Carl Siciliano, and I thank you for joining us. There are gods amongst us in these ghettos, so black, so fierce, so black, so beautiful, so brown, so fierce, so brown, so beautiful. Watch them carefully and say your prayers as they enter the ballroom. Angel winged feathers decorating skin recrafted over silicone and martyred colors. As the Ali Fernay Center celebrates Latinx Heritage Month, I'm honored to welcome author, poet, editor, activist, and former homeless youth, Emmanuel Xavier. I'm fascinated by Emmanuel's literary work because of how it gives fierce and authentic voice to the realities faced by New York City's homeless queer youth of color in the years before the creation of the Ali Fernay Center. 1969 saw the Stonewall Riots, where homeless queer youth, many of them trans and black and brown, were on the front lines of the eruption of our movement for freedom and liberation. But in the ensuing decades, the LGBT movement that emerged from Stonewall all too often reflected the inequalities and injustices of our American society, where the lives of black and brown and indigenous and trans and non-binary people were radically devalued. Nowhere was this brutal devaluation more evident than in the experiences of the thousands of homeless queer youths left unsheltered in the streets, left unseen, left uncared for. Emmanuel Xavier became homeless as a teen in the 1980s, and in his remarkable novel Christ-like, and in many of his poems, he documents the experiences of abandoned youths who had no means of survival save for sex work and drug dealing. I cherish Emmanuel's work for its truthfulness and its raw beauty. He witnesses to what it was to be pushed out to the very margins of the city against a backdrop of the AIDS pandemic and its losses and terrors, against a backdrop of violence, drugs, racist policing, and savage societal neglect. He confesses to rage, confusion, struggles with despair. I don't believe we can adequately understand our own queer history in New York City without listening to Emmanuel Xavier. And so I want to welcome him as our very first guest on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the support. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is if you could describe how it was that you came to be a homeless youth in New York City and when that happened. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a native New Yorker who grew up in Brooklyn, and I remember as a child, my mother's boyfriend would drive us around the city at night to sightsee as a wannabe family. And we would drive past the West Side Highway Piers on Christopher Street, and I remember as a child being enthralled by the sights of men holding hands of other men, women holding hands of other women, men dressed as women, women who could pass as men. And so 
by the time I was in my teens and would venture into the city on my own via the L train, I, you know, I sought to discover this magical land that I knew existed out there. I would kind of seek this place out on my own. Like, and you know, the L train was rough back then. Like, you did not take the L train, you know, as a teen on your own without, like, a group of friends or, you know, with a posse or anything. And so that, that I think, was pretty daring for me. But, you know, um, eventually when I was around 16, my mom overheard a phone conversation. I'm sure you remember what phones used to be like, you know. There was a phone in the bedroom. She could pick it up and hear what I'm talking about in the kitchen. That's what we used to do back in the day. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was a very difficult time for me, but as a Latinx New Yorker from Bushwick, I was angry at the world and I had attitude. And so by the time I made it out, to the West Side Highway Piers, I fit right in and became really fast friends with the underage hustlers and trans women that were working the piers. And I knew what I had to do in order to survive, unfortunately. You know, it helped that I was curious about sex at the time. And I didn't look at it as something that I needed I didn't look at it as something tragic, you know, at the time. You know, I was having sex and I was making money. That's basically how I spent my nights, you know. Um, I I know there were plenty of times that I put myself in harm's way, but at the time I was honestly more concerned about getting AIDS because it was still something that was very new and I was surviving as a sex worker in the middle of a pandemic, you know? Wow. So in 1986, I actually moved to New York to to work with homeless people at the Catholic Worker Movement. And that was where I came out of the closet and I fell in love with this guy named Gary. And he got a job daily house, which was, you know, Mm -hmm. at the end of Christopher Street. Yes. Was a a residence for, and still is, a residence for homeless people with AIDS. Yes. I remember going there, like it was like a safe space. It was right across the street from the piers, and we'd drop by to get some food and hang out. So I, I, I certainly very much remember what Christopher Street was like back in 86, 87. Yeah. Um, I remember the snap queens. Like you'd walk up and down the street, and, and, and people would like be snapping all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a very popular thing back then. Yeah. I don't think yeah, I was like, really much of a snapper, but... <laughs> Yeah, to me it was like an older gay black thing, mm-hmm. uh, like like the like the, the the guys in their forties or something. They'd all be snapping at people. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I remember like seeing Marsha Johnson, um, yeah. all the crazy stuff in her I hair. See her all the time, and you know, I I was just some punk ass kid. I had no idea of my queer history, no idea of who she was. We would just see her, and she was like a hot mess to us. Because, you know, I mean, she would just be walking around with the little grapes in her hair and everything. And, and you know, she would chat with us and we'd just kind of walk away and, you know, make fun of her. 
like not knowing that this was an important historical figure to our community because it was just like a bunch of like underage kids hanging up here and we just saw her as like, you know, some homeless like drug queen that was walking up and down, you know, Christopher Street. And you know, it wasn't... a fascinating story. I When I first came to the city in 86, I met mm-hmm. two people that had been in the Stonewall riots. They were amongst the first openly queer people that I met, Thomas Lanning mm-hmm. and Schmidt and Martin Boyce. Mm-hmm. And they told me about how they were part of like this kind of scene of, of, of homeless queer kids who hang out mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. in Sheridan Square back in, in, in you know, in like 69, 70, mm-hmm. 68, and how Marsha was one of them, was mm-hmm. part of their, their group. And, and, and Tommy said that she had this thing in those days where she would go to the flower district and mm-hmm. sit in some alley and like all of the, the, the guys, the Indian guys, like Hindu guys that would like sell the flowers in the flower district would come and gather around her and, and like surround her with all of the unsold flowers of the day. Mm. And she would just sit there like a goddess. And, <laughs> um, Tommy said it was like one of the most amazing things he ever saw. Um, yeah. I so. do remember her being very, very sweet. And, um, you know, I, I think self-regret, I mean, regret is self-destructive, but I do regret having not known my history, knowing the importance of of her at the time, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't think it was, I think it was a scene where people were so focused on surviving from minute to minute that, you know, like studying history wasn't maybe the most pressing thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I became the director of of Safe Space, which was a drop-in center for homeless queer teens. Well, for actually for all homeless teens, but but we mm-hmm. were very intentional about making it a safe space for for the LGBT youth. I started working there in '94, and I remember when I first started there, um, some of the staff were telling me that that some a Latina woman, a Latina transgender woman who had been in the um, Stonewall riots. Mm-hmm. came and, and talked to the young people, but they couldn't remember her name, and I was wondering if it could have been Sylvia Rivera. Mm-hmm. But they said that, you know, she was talking to the young people about being, you know, politically active and engaged. And at the time, like, a lot of the young people at Safe Space were very, like, you know, in the ballroom scene and, and on the mm-hmm. piers, and, and their their focus was much more, like, mm-hmm. hair and makeup. And, <laughs> and um, like, you know, how real you looked. Mm-hmm. And, and and they were just horrified by by th- this older Stonewall veteran because they felt that her hair and her nails were not on point. <laughs> and you know, I, I think it was the same thing. I think it's like you know they're just trying to survive. Yeah, yeah you gotta remember, like, and, first of and, all, you're 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 in your teens and you're just coming into your own, and you're you're very impressionable, but you know you're sort of coming to terms with becoming an adult but at the same time you know you're you're rejected by like friends or family and and you're taught that you're going to hell and you know so you have all these things going on and you know so it's it's like it's incredible that there's so many young people involved in politics and social justice today because it's it's important and and we weren't like that back then because we were dealing with other things you know the fear of AIDS you know now it's COVID but back then at least with COVID there's the possibility of a cure now back then we just felt like you know we didn't know we were going to be alive in a week 
or a couple of weeks or months or years. You know, we didn't really think about our future or anybody else's future because we were just living for the moment because that's all we had. So, you know, for me in those days, like the late 80s, I was working on, on the Lower East Side with homeless adults. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't have almost any consciousness of, like, homeless mm-hmm. teens. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I started to become kind of remotely aware of the issue was when Madonna's Vogue came out. Mm-hmm. Um, because Gary, my, my my lover at the time, you know, like I said, he was working at Bailey House. Mm-hmm. And he said for a year after the song came out, they just played the song over and over again on the piers. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, like he said, there'd be all these young people on the piers. And then at huge. three in the morning, they would just be playing the song over and mm-hmm. over and over again, and everybody would be voguing. And he was it like, was "Well, it's Madonna. obvious." Well, he, but he was also like, "Well, it's obvious. They have nowhere to go. Like, why? Why? Mm-hmm. Why else would they be out on the piers at four in the morning?" Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was like my first kind of awareness that there was like you know mm-hmm. multiple young people experiencing homelessness. Who, you know, who were like basically like queer youth of color. Yeah, and a lot of us, like, you know, we would spend time, like, we couldn't get into the clubs because we were old enough. And so that was just, like, the safe space that we created for ourselves. And interestingly enough, it was right on the edge of the city, like, at the piers. Like, you know, it was like we didn't have any other place where we felt comfortable as, you know, as young people of color. We were just, you know, that's, that's where we kind of created families and spent our time and yes you could be out all night and you know you wouldn't have to worry about going somewhere because you know there were always people there hanging out and and it was it was a very different time it was a very unique time and 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 I, I look back at it with great fondness but you know yes there, there was a lot of sadness to it too well, something that comes across so clearly in your book that, you know, it also very much resonates for me was just violence, the death, mm-hmm. people being found in the, in yeah. the Hudson River, uh, especially transgender people of color being mm-hmm. found in the, in, the, in the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marsha Johnson, of course, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and um, so, you know, like, there was like this kind of space that people were able to create, but it was also mm-hmm. a space in which people were like so marginalized and so pushed off to the edges and mm-hmm. you were also taking your life in your hands. Yes. We put ourselves in very dangerous situations, but, you know, um, but, but at the same time, that's, that's where we felt safe. That's where we felt most comfortable. That's when, that's where we can go and be ourselves openly. When I started working with homeless youth in New York City in 1994, I was shocked. I was really mm-hmm. shocked at how little support there was. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, like the only shelter in town at that time was Covenant House. Did, did you ever try to stay at Covenant House? No, I don't remember when it. There was some sort of unfortunate reputation that it had, and I don't remember if it was around that time or if that happened later. But um, well, uh, you know, back in the eighties, like um, they they had they had a reputation that was honored for being very homophobic, um, mm-hmm. transphobic. 
uh, when, mm-hmm. when, the, when the Gay Rights Bill passed in 1986 that made it illegal to discriminate against, against queer people in, in employment and housing, uh, the Cardinal of New York, Cardinal O'Connor, Mm-hmm. And, and Father Ritter, the founder of Covenant House, they joined together and sued to overturn the law, saying that, you know, as Catholics, they shouldn't have to hire hire gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1990, it turned out that, that Father Ritter was uh, a sexual abuser who was mm-hmm. uh, moving uh, young people into his private penthouse and using mm-hmm. them for sex. And that that turned out to be this huge, huge scandal that was mm-hmm. like all over the papers. Well, I think um, that's what I remembered. I wasn't running to Covenant House anytime soon at the time. So I gather that that one of the real legendary icons of, of ballroom played a pretty important part in your life, uh, mm-hmm. Willie, Willie Ninja. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be willing to talk about your relationship with Willie? Yes, absolutely. He was one of the first few people I met at the piers, and I was immediately drawn to him. Um, I knew that he was some sort of a celebrity because, you know, he had a documentary crew following him around for some sort of film project, which would later be known as Paris is Burning. And he was always friendly and generous. And, you know, um, it was a a period when I went back home and finished high school and attempted college, but I ended up back at the piers. And so when I was back at the piers, we, you know, we found each other again and, you know, just spend a lot of time hanging out, like at Uncle Charlie's, watching the videos, because, <laughs> you know, we could, we didn't have cable. And um, he was just really talented and fun to be around with. And um, he was definitely one of the people that supported and encouraged me to write, because he knew that that was something that I really wanted to do and he felt that I was good at it and um, you know when I did eventually become a writer he was very proud of me very supportive and um, we kept in touch throughout the years Um, I think it was like fall of 2005 just a few months before he passed I had an incident in Bushwick myself where I had been attacked by a group of teens and I was having issues with my hearing on my right ear. And around the same time, I found out that he was not doing very well because he was HIV positive. And I remember having a lengthy conversation with him over the phone, and I was really angry with him because he never told me that. And, you know, we we promised each other that we were going to survive this. And I remember, like, I think February of 2006, like, I had to undergo surgery um, to to have, like, a tumor removed due to the incident. And after that, he was just always in the hospital, and I would go visit him all the time. And wow. It was, like, it was April 2006 when he passed. And I remember, like, maybe a couple of days before that, 
he asked me to get in touch with Jenny Levingstein. She's the director of Paris is Burning. And of course. She was very fond of her. And, and you know, I remember telling her, like, you need to go see him at the hospital because I honestly don't think he's going to make it. And and she did. And he was very, very grateful for that. And he wanted me to come in and read my poem, Legendary, to him, which was his favorite poem. It was about the ballroom scene. And I had actually read it in an event at the center, you know, in memory of Pepper LaBeja. <laughs> so, so it was very meaningful to spend that time with him, especially knowing that, you know, I, I could tell he wasn't going to last for too long. And, and surely enough, a couple of days later, he passed. Wow. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss. It sounds like Willie Ninja was a real mentor and he was and from guiding a life for a lot you of in a people. time when maybe there were not a whole lot of people able to be that for you. Yeah. yeah. I actually had a I had two encounters with Willie Ninja in my life. Um, <laughs> uh, the first was sort of shady, um, <laughs> which he was known to be also. Yeah, no, I, I, I was um, when I was 26 years old. Me and this other guy were like. Want to go to the sound factory, and he wouldn't let me in. He, mm-hmm. he didn't believe I was gay. <laughs> it was the only time in my life I was ever turned away from a club. I, I was flabbergasted because <laughs> you know I was pretty hot, and I was just like everybody wants to be in the clubs. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Willie Ninja like would not let me in. He was like, "You're not gay. This is only for gay people." Um, <laughs> and then much later, like a few months before he died. The first fundraisers we did for the Ali Fernay Center uh, were called Luscious, which was mm-hmm. Ali Fernay's street name. Mm-hmm. And um, we would do a, a, like a, a variety show at the Lucille Hortel Theater on Christopher Street. Mm-hmm. And my husband, Raymond, ha- had been a professional dancer in his youth uh, and, and was doing a dance group with um, the the Church of um, St. Luke in the Fields on the corner of, of Christopher and Hudson. Okay. Uh, they, they, they started doing this like program on Saturday evenings uh, for the kids on the piers. And, and so Raymond had a little dance company called Out of the Dark Dance Ensemble. Mm-hmm. And um, they were performing, voguing at that, that this talent show, Luscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, one of them was just a total Willie Ninja fan and was able to persuade him to come and, and vogue with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it may have been one of his last public performances because he mm-hmm. died just a few months later. And yeah. he was so sweet. I remember him saying he was so grateful that there was something like the Alley Frenet Center. He was saying, like, anything that, that he could do to help the kids on the piers, you know, get housing and support, he would do. Like, he told me I could call on him for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was... Uh, a much sweeter encounter than, than than the first. Was he still able to click? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it was amazing actually because, like, you know, the, the out of the dance dark uncle started. You know, they they were on stage and they started to vogue and stuff. And then about thirty seconds in, suddenly, like, a spotlight opens up on Willie Ninja, and the crowd just like went wild. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like he was such a legend. Yeah, and, um, but I think it was already pretty well known that he was. Pretty yeah, but you know, when you act like a legend. He was just Willie Ninja. He was so sweet and so friendly. Like you would never, never ever know that he was like 
the godfather of Vogue and that he had done so many amazing things in his life. You know, he was just very, very humble, very, he was very genuine and a lovely person yeah. around. Yeah, no, I was struck very much by his sweetness and by his sense of, like, community mm-hmm. responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he, sen- he sensed in a certain sense that he was, like, sort of a godmother <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to so many of these kids out there. And, and yeah. um, um, yeah. you know, the other day I was watching, um, you know, I- I've seen Paris is Burning, like, a hundred million times. But <laughs> I was watching uh, Marlon Riggs, the the documentary film he made called Tongues Untied in mm-hmm. the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And I had, for, you know, I hadn't seen it in 20 years or something. And I'd forgotten like all the footage of Lily voguing in it. Oh, and yeah, I was just so right. struck. I was so struck by his like, you know, in, in, in Paris is Burning, you get this real sense of his like skill, like his, mm-hmm. in, 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 in Tongues Untied, you get this feeling of his sensuality. Mm-hmm. Like, like he looks like this kind of God of of, mm-hmm. of beauty and <laughs> oh, he would love to hear that. He would have loved to have heard that. <laughs> that's that's what I thought when I was watching. I was like, oh my god, he looks so. It, 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 the, 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 the tongues untied footage just captures a different side of, of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was really glad that I saw that. If Jesus were gay and still loved by God and Mary because he was their child after all, hailed by all angels and feared by demons, would you still long to be healed by him? Take him into your home and comfort him? Heal his wounds and break bread with him? Catholicism looms over Emmanuel Xavier's work. Jesus and Mary and St. Therese and Mary Magdalene are woven through his novel and poems, as ubiquitous as their presence in the bushwick of his youth. In many ways, the crisis of LGBT youth homelessness is a crisis of religion. More than 90% of the young people who come to the Ali Fernay Center for help tell us their parents' religious beliefs drove them from their homes. Emmanuel gives voice to the anguish and confusion of a queer teen told he is hateful in the name of a God of love. His work shows of a struggling, a wrestling with images of a cruel condemnatory God, transgressively challenging those images of religion to instead manifest his yearning for self-acceptance and self-love. One of the things I find really fascinating about your work is is how the wildly overuse of Catholicism, mm-hmm. um, you know, Christ-like, uh, what if Jesus were gay? You just obviously have yeah. a real fascination with Christian imagery. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that's so important to you in your work. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a very pseudo-Catholic household. <laughs> you know, my mom, like, she... She feigned religion, but we really ever went to church. And and I remember her taking me on several occasions to put spells on her living boyfriend by visiting Santeros in the neighborhood. And I was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I always thought I was some sort of evil because I was gay at the same time. And in fact, um, 
you know, it, in fact, it was what I was taught to believe. So I'm decidedly an atheist because of that, for that and for many other reasons. But nonetheless, I've always been fascinated by religion, especially Catholicism and how it, you know, it relates to and defines people, you know. And I mean, even though I'm an atheist, I, I do believe queer people should embrace whatever religion provides them with peace the spirituality, you know, I do believe if there is a God, that sheer he would love all of us, you know. Um, but I, I think also being Latinx, um, you know, makes me that much more curious about Catholicism because it's something that, like I said, I grew up with in my family. and um, And it was something that I was always around or, or taught that this was the way to be, this was the only path to, you know, to, you know, to success or survival or happiness. Yeah. Reading the book Christ-like, one of the things that I found very striking was um, throughout the course of the book, you have this kind of recurring dream. Mm-hmm. Um, in which you're basically Jesus, right? Um, I th- yes, I think the character believes he's sort of Christ-like, which is where the title came from. I mean, in retrospect, I think it's an unfortunate title because it kept a lot of people away from reading the book because they thought it was about something else, but it totally wasn't. But but for those people that have read it, yes, um, I think I think the main character. You know, he he's he's debating within himself whether he's like like Christ or like the Antichrist. You know, because he he grew up surrounded by Catholicism and religion, but yet, you know, being gay and being taught that you're evil and that you're going to go to hell and that you know makes him believe that he he's like an Antichrist sort of figure. So I think that's what he's like struggling with within himself, which is why he keeps having these, these very vivid dreams where where he thinks he's sort of like a Christ figure. You know, one of the reasons I found that moving, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, I guess, my personal belief system here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's this kind of mainstream understanding of like, you know, the crucifixion, which mm-hmm. is that you know, we were all these terrible sinners and, and Jesus took on our sins and died and saved us. And that, that's been sort of like the, 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 the dominant narrative around the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. But there's another uh, narrative around the crucifixion. People like uh, a desert father named Isaac of, of, of Syria, uh, Francis of Assisi, and some of his early followers, uh, that the, they saw it more in terms of that Christ, in, in Christ, God took on our suffering. Like mm-hmm. God took on our pain, our, our anguish, mm-hmm. our, our despair. Like, like that, that there's no separation anymore. It's not like there's some God up in the sky judging us uh, that we don't live up to, but that God is like suffering with us, alongside us. And mm-hmm. I actually felt like the dreams throughout Christ, like we're articulating that. Mm-hmm. You know, like like that the, the, there was a certain sense in which you were saying like, 
and maybe I'm misinterpreting it. <laughs> or no, reading it through my own eyes, totally, I love when, you know, I love, I mean, that's what art is. It's, it's open to interpretation. Everybody takes some, walks away with something different from it. So, yes, that's, that's, yeah, that's just like, you know, like the, when, when, when the, the character, uh, Nikki, uh, you know, who I got very much based on, on yourself, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is dreaming about being in the desert with the cross and, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I actually saw it as like this kind of beautiful statement of like, mm-hmm. even though you're suffering and even though you're going through all this self-hatred, Mm-hmm. And even though you feel like your life is spiraling out of control, like on a certain mm-hmm. level, like God is still with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very spiritual, and um, you know, I, I do believe that there was once a man named Jesus that walked this earth. I do believe he was a great man with a good heart that wanted to make this a better world for us. One of the things that I, I would say has caused me the most pain in life is um, the kind of discordance between mm-hmm. my own sense of like a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and non-judgment and being on the side of the oppressed and the afflicted and the outcast mm-hmm. and, and, and the, this reality that, that 90% of the young people who come to the Ali Fernay Center for Help say that the reason they couldn't stay in their homes was because of the religious beliefs of their families. Mm-hmm. You know, like so mm-hmm. many young people have been told that they're shameful, that they're abominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, we've had kids who just, you know, who tell us just the most horrible things that their parents have said to them. And it's all like framed in, in these kinds of religious rejection mm-hmm. kind of narratives. And it's it's just. Yeah, it takes a lot to be able to find like the God within ourselves, you know. To, to be able to 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 love ourselves and you know re, you know whatever religion you ultimately embrace you know we have to take a lot of us have to take that journey on our own because we're taught that you know like I said that we're evil that we're not worthy that that we're not children of a higher being and yeah. um and we go through so many other things that we have to 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 struggle with and survive. So, you know, it it may take a little bit longer for us to to get to that point where where you know we embrace a certain religion and, and learn to appreciate it. That I appreciate all religions and and I appreciate the time that I spent you know, learning all that theology and learning about all other religions. And, you know, the one thing that I discovered, which I found most interesting, is that they're all very similar. You know, whatever your God is named, you know, they're all, it's all about being a better person and making this a better world, ultimately. And that's that's the truth. That's the underlying message of any religion, unfortunately. A lot of people use it for the wrong reasons and manipulate it. To, to serve their own purposes. And, and I think that's what kind of, you know, shied me away from, you know, from all of that. So 
I guess my last question for you would be, how did you find the strength within yourself to go from, you know, being a kid tricking and, and drugging and, and abandoned uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, this creative published author, editor, like so many of the young people I knew from that time didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of kids I knew from like who were like struggling on the streets in the early 90s, mid 90s, ended up getting killed. Mm-hmm. A lot of them ended up in jail for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, a lot of the ones who are still alive have like pretty serious drug habits. It's, it's mm-hmm. like I kind of feel like I can count on my hands like the number of people that I kind of feel like survived that time intact. Mm-hmm. Um, and. So, I, you know, I just feel like, you know, just your survival is kind of historically remarkable because mm-hmm. not too many people were able to. So uh, could you talk a little bit about how you... Yeah, I mean... You know, got yourself to a healthier place? Well, I know a lot of my peers never made it and eventually passed. Um you know, I myself was involved with drugs, and I myself was a drug dealer, and I myself had my own addiction, but, you know, I had to come to a place where I personally accepted the fact that I experienced all of that because I was angry, I was hurt, I was self-destructive, and I had to understand for myself that it was okay to be all of that considering what I had been through. And, you know, I made many bad choices, but it was not entirely my fault, you know. And I think writing helped me get to a, you know, to a place where I can place those demons and leave them behind. I, you know, I know that I'm very fortunate to have lived life, the lives that I've lived, you know, as a peer queen and eventually as a writer. I stumbled upon the spoken word poetry scene and I fell in love with it. And I heard people telling their truths and and telling their stories. And I was like, oh, oh, wait, I have something to share too. And, you know, I, I was fearless in that aspect that I never really thought of, you know, the possibility of a homophobic audience or or being judged because of the things that I had experienced. And, you know, I think that's what spoken word poetry was for me, for a lot of people. Like it was about telling your truth and, and living your truth. And, you know, I think that that really helped me, you know, get to where I am today and I know that I'm very lucky I know that I'm very fortunate because I know by all means and accounts you know I I, I should have been dead many many years ago and I've been through so many you know tragic experiences in my life but I don't focus on that I think it's important to focus on on the positivity and, and where we could be as a society and and I think that's that's what keeps me going. I think that that was my motivation. I think most importantly for me it was being able to share that story to give voice to others who perhaps didn't have this opportunity or you know were you know were afraid to share these stories because 
it's important for us to share our histories because if we don't, you know, who's going to share them for us? You know, I didn't want, like, some older white man from the Midwest to be writing about the queer, like, Latino experience in New York City at the piers, you know. Um, I Even if it wasn't, you know, properly edited, even if it wasn't perfect, even if, if it was a challenge for me, you know, I I was able to share that story and put it out there for for the world to see, you know, to hear from someone in our own community, you know, and hopefully be inspired by that. Yeah, well, you know, look, I can say this. I I, I was not a homeless queer kid, I, I but I spent many years with 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 those young people <laughs> and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting for me now to see kind of Hollywood go back and look at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways I find it thrilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in other ways it, it, it weirds me out a little bit because mm-hmm. I feel like what was going on in those days and what people lived through was actually harsher and more morally ambiguous and more awful in, in a lot of ways than, than mm-hmm. what people want to see on their television screens. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel like you're Christ-like, and in some of in some of your poetry, you speak in a more true and real way about what it was like than I've ever seen anybody else do. Um, Thank you. And and um, actually, it means a lot to me that, that that somebody who lived through it ended up with the strength and the fortitude and the ability and the genius to to put it out there and to, to express it in such a real, raw, true way. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for your existence. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I, I feel the same way, you know. I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I love Poe's. And, um, you know, but, it, like, when I watched the first episode, I was like, some of that would have never possibly happened have happened, but I understood why they were presenting it in such a way, you know, in order to reach a wider audience it needed to be a bit more family friendly. And eventually they at least touched on some of those most more difficult subjects. And I know it's not a hundred percent, but it did bring this underground world to the forefront and provide opportunity for so many trans people of color and you know you really can't I can't really hate on that oh my god no I don't want to sound like I'm hating on it because no no when I first was watching it I was just actually ecstatic um, Mm -hmm. just to see so many trans people of color like empowered uh, Mm -hmm. cast uh, you know producing directing (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, yeah just that felt revolutionary to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I could only say I, I might feel a little slighted because <laughs> I would have loved to have been part of it somehow. I know Jenny Levingston recommended me as someone to consult for the show along with several others, but I, you know, no one ever reached out to me. But, but you know, I'm glad that it's on the air, and I'm glad that, it, you know, when I'm sitting at Penguin Random House and my coworker, you know, who who is white from New Jersey is – is asking me about the show and that she just watched and asking me questions about my own experiences, that means a lot to me because, like, oh, okay, 
like, like now you sort of get it. Like, you know, and I could tell her, like, well, you know, it really wasn't like that. Or, yes, they really captured that moment. Or, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's great to be able to have these conversations with people that you would have never expected to have these conversations with. Yeah. Well, I think that anybody who's interested in Pose would do well to um, go read Christlike. Thank you. Um, and and not be put off by the title because I think that it gives a very honest and truthful and raw and intense um, uh, portrayal of, of of that time and a place that that that's you know not by a rich white guy in Hollywood, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but by. Uh, a young queer Latinx person who who lived through it, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that you've left a, 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 an invaluable testimony of, of of what those days and what those times were, and um, I thank you for it. To conclude our podcast, I asked Emmanuel to recite his amazing poem, Legendary. Listening to him, you will understand why it was Willie Ninja's favorite poem. There are gods amongst us in these ghettos So black, so fierce, so brown, so beautiful Their time on earth may be as oppressive as ignorance Limited to the demons flowing in their blood But after safely passing over back to the clouds The wind will still carry their auras and prophecies Their bones will still beat drums for their children to dance The phoenix will still rise from the flames of Paris with hope and womb. There are gods amongst us in these ghettos, so brown, so fierce, so black, so beautiful. If you spend too much time caught up in yourself, you just might miss him that is goddess, she that is God, they that are legends, working the runway as if walking on water, reaching the stage that promised land, where peace is not ridiculed, and the only war worth fighting for is protecting your child from the terrorist acts of a mainstream America. Where reading is an act of learning, not degrading words used to disguise fragility and fractured dreams. Where shade is a shadow you walk in to avoid the light, but who wants to stay out of the warmth of the sun? If you waste your time trying to be a false prophet, robe and attitude and labels to obscure the insecurity, you may fail to recognize their divinity and miracles. Parting the crowds, resurrecting from the floor, scoring tens of commandments because trophies will not feed the hungry coat the homeless hide the scars grand prizes will not bring Lazarus or Labasia back from the dead they will just sit in your closet fake idols gathering dust before the gold paint chips away you cannot sell them for freedom you cannot trade them in for love there are gods amongst us in these ghettos so black so fierce so black so beautiful, so brown, so fierce, so brown, so beautiful. Watch them carefully and say your prayers as they enter the ballroom. Angel winged feathers decorating skin recrafted over silicone in martyred colors. See the gods dream, the gods see the gods give, the gods see the gods live, the gods live.
They exist in the spaces where white is not the only hue that represents purity. They will not battle to your rhythms and beats, click, spin, and dip simply for amusement. They will not teach those who share their souls and names to hate. Their heartbeats are louder than the blaring speakers. You want realness? Look at your hands. Are they red from the revolution or from the blood of your own sisters? There are gods amongst us in these ghettos. So black, so brown, so fierce, so beautiful, so bright. Look up towards the heavens and pray. Then look at yourself in the mirror and say, stars are not only found out in the sky, but in ourselves. I extend my most heartfelt gratitude to Emmanuel Xavier for agreeing to be our very first guest. Last year, his novel Christlike was republished by Rebel Satori Press, and April of 2021 will see the publication of the selected poems of Emmanuel Xavier. To purchase his work, look for the links at alifernaycenter.org slash podcast. I thank the Ali Fernay Center's Tyler Nisloni and Walter Castaneda for their invaluable production assistance with this podcast. And furthermore, extend my gratitude to David Raleigh and Rami Ramirez for providing the vocals and instrumentation of our theme music.